Okay, so wow, where, where do you even begin on a day like today? I mean, there's probably 20 different ways that I could approach this, but let me try my best to try it, as I said before the Mass, um, for those who don't believe, to show that this is real, this is a real historical event, and for those who don't understand the meaning, to help clarify that. All right, now, Mary of Magdala loved Jesus so much, all right? She, she probably loved him even more than the apostles, the church fathers tell us. And she never forgot what Jesus did for her, as neither should we. This is why I believe, or many believe, Mary of Magdala was given the privilege of being the first at the tomb. Her troubled past, her sins, didn't disqualify her from being the first witness of the resurrection. This is an incredible thing for us to comprehend. Think of the sins that Mary Magdalene had committed, and yet she's chosen to be the first one at the, at the witness of the resurrection. That's the beauty of Divine Mercy Sunday, which we'll talk about all next week which is a cleansing, complete cleansing of our past, a complete starting anew. And today begins the Easter octave. I'll get to that. Now, if the apostles had stolen the body as a hoax, they would have certainly arranged or planned it so that two men or more would have witnessed the open tomb, empty tomb. Because in those days, a woman's witness was not legal, and they needed to be two men. So if they were organizing this, they would have made sure that there would have been no opportunity for some woman to come along and ruin their whole plans. So that's just the way it was. How condescending. They didn't do that. These were men of Christ. So they would have arranged for men to witness it, but they didn't. Instead, Jesus picks a sinful woman that has been redeemed. Now, notice that Mary went to Peter first, despite he just denied Jesus, all right, showing that he is still the leader. This is the foundation of the papacy, all right? So Peter came with John, and then what does John do when they both arrive at the tomb? John steps back allows Peter to enter first, which is a sign of the authority of Peter. That is the Pope, the papacy. So we have papal authority here. <clears throat> He's the leader. But wait a minute. What about Jesus' resurrection? Didn't Lazarus rise from the dead? How come we're not celebrating Lazarus here? Okay. Lazarus' body was not changed. It was the same as it was before. He died, yes, Jesus resurrected him, but his body still was limited by space and time. He was still constrained. He'd still get sick, and he would still die again. Jesus, on the other hand, was not the same as it was before. He's now not constrained by space and time. He can walk through walls. He won't ever die again. So the resurrection means that Christianity is unique in a way no other religion is. 
Everybody always says, oh, you know, all religions are the same. We have to we have to look at it that way within our family. No. Yeah, we have to have respect. I'm not I'm not saying that at all. But we have to acknowledge the truth. And the truth is this. What makes Christianity unique is different than any other religion in the world out of the hundreds of thousands that exist. No others have the virgin birth. No other have the incarnation. No other have the resurrection. It's unique to Christianity, unique to our faith. All right, now, I want to show a couple of the reasons that I, to me, proved that the resurrection when I was a teenager was real. You know, we're all doubts, right? All right, first of all, the, the, the apostles went in, James and John's went into the tomb, and what did they find? They found that the grave clothes were not disarranged, but were evenly and nicely even folded up in the corner. Now, grave clothes would not have looked like that, right? Okay, first of all, they, they did not look like they had been taken off. Now, Jesus was buried with, they guess, about 75 pounds of spice. So if he was wrapped up in the shroud and had 75 pounds of spice, if he really wasn't dead, and they just thought he was dead, when he woke up, he's tied up and wrapped in 75 pounds of spices. He's going to be struggling. This is no doubt going to have to tear to get the rope or whatever he's tied up with, shred the whole shroud. There's no way this thing would be neatly, nicely looking like something beautiful. It would not have. All right. Jesus would have had to struggle to get out of it. And if he did, it would have been torn. Now, this wasn't torn. And then it says the face cloth, which we call the sudarium, which is Latin for napkin, actually, um, wouldn't have been rolled up. Why? If somebody, now let's go to the other option. Jesus actually was dead. So the first option is that he really wasn't dead. That's disproven by the, the clothes themselves. The other dispute is somebody came and took the body, the apostles. Well, I already said if they did, they would have had men as the witness, but somebody else, let's say grave robbers, stole the body. All right, here's the thing. If somebody stole the body, <laughs> they would have not left the clothes behind. Um, you wouldn't want the body. You'd want the linen. This was a fine cloth. In fact, grave robbers then, when I say grave robber, I'm not talking about body snatchers. Grave robbers came in and took what was in the grave, not the body. They left the body. They didn't care about that. They don't want a decaying corpse. They took what was in the tomb that was worth something. These are robbers. So they would have taken the linen cloth. That was valuable. This is a very fine linen cloth. And they certainly wouldn't have taken the time to fold them. <laughs> I mean, what robbers do you know that are going to set the dinner table after they rob the house? Right? All right. So no thief would have taken the time to unwrap the cor corpse, right, and then fold the clothes. Because in those days, they stole the linen and left the body, not leave the body, or I should say take the body and leave the linen. You see the point here? It was if the body 
of Jesus had simply evaporated through this cloth. If Jesus was struggling to get it off, there would be smears of blood on the shroud of Turin. Not one of those stains is smeared, which means nobody pulled the body out of the shroud. That means nobody pulled the shroud off of the body. If they did, it would be impossible for there to not be blood smears. There's not a single smear blood on the shroud. It's almost like the body evaporated through it. Now, the image on the shroud also matches what we know of Jesus. It is a bearded man, about 5'10", 5'11", about 175 pounds. His physique, muscular, well-built, estimated about 30 to 35 years of age. All this matches. And they determine that the blood is real blood, <clears throat> but the image is not a painted image. It's actually scorched. It's almost like it's burned into the cloth. In fact, scientists have said that to make an image like that would only come from two possible ways, a burst of radiation or a, a light so bright that it actually burned an image into the cloth. If you ever imagine the resurrection, what do you picture? A blinding light. A light so blinding that remember the pictures of the apostles are going like this. So this is what we would picture. And so this is the things that people don't seem to understand. And, and then pollen, they've done, tested with pollen only comes, some of the pollen only comes from that region of the Holy Land. Some of the plants that the pollen is there went extinct in the first century. So it places the shroud at that time. And some of those plants were unique just to Jerusalem area. So it puts it in that place. My favorite is the uh, scientists have determined that when they blew up the face on the shroud with it, magnified it, um, they could see that actually there were two coins placed in the eyes. And why were coins placed in the eyes? Because when a body back then died, it still could have rigor mortis, where all of a sudden a lying corpse would, all of a sudden the eyes would jolt open and the body would jerk and stiffen. And so to prevent rigor mortis and the eyes popping open to freak people thinking there was demonic spirits, they would put coins over the eyes. Now, when the scientists zoomed in and magnified the coins, you can look this up, they found that on the coins they could read the inscription. And the inscription on the coin said that these coins were minted under the authority of Pontius Pilate between 29 and 32 AD. If Jesus died in 33 AD, that would be a coin in circulation. This is amazing. Now, there's a lot more to it that there was a misspelling on the coin, but a lot of coins had misspellings. Okay, so a lot of good stuff. Now, here's the thing. The paint on it is not a forgery and it wasn't created. Now, here's another one that gets me. Do you know in all of recorded history, we never have an example of a human being that was both scourged and crucified other than Jesus Christ in the Gospels. They didn't do both. The reason is because if you scourge the man, he wouldn't have the strength to walk and finish his march to, to, the, to the crucifixion. And if you were going to crucify him, you wouldn't want him to not make it to the place of crucifixion. So either they scourged him to teach him a lesson with the plan to let him go, 
or they plan to crucify him, and in which case they would not scourge him. So if they scourged him to plan to let him go, they didn't crucify him. And if they planned to crucify him, they wouldn't scourge him because he wouldn't make it. Jesus is the only example in recorded human history that we have both. And the reason is because after Pilate had him scourged, he wasn't planning on crucifying him. He thought that was enough and he was going to let him go. He ended up having him crucified. The wounds on the shroud are of a man who is both scourged and crucified. Amazing. All right, so enough of the science. I want to get now to the meaning. Let's finish with this. Okay, that's all why for people who don't believe, I believe it's real. Now let's talk about those who don't understand, that don't receive the grace because they just don't get it. Let's talk about this. All right, we said before, you've heard me say, why did Jesus die? You may not have heard me say why he resurrected. All right, Jesus died, as you've heard me say before, because the penalty for sin is death. Paul says the wage of sin is death. When you sin or I sin, somebody has got to die. We have all sinned. We all deserve to die. Instead, a man has taken our place. Now, why Jesus? Okay. Once the fall of Adam and Eve happened, man was in perfect order with God. But once the fall happened, that gap that was created between God and man was so big, created by sin, that only God could fix it. So God would have to fix this gap that was too big for any man to fix. The problem is God didn't create it. Man caused that gap. So do we have the person to fix this gap of man because man created it, or God because only God is powerful and full enough to fix it? The answer, the God-man. That's why Jesus, or the second person of the Trinity, became a man. Now, he fixed this gap, but he died. Well, then what? That the end of the story? No, he resurrected. Why did he resurrect? Because the biggest tool of Satan is death. Because that's ultimately what sin leads to. Yeah, it leads to misery and unhappiness, but what Satan ultimately wants from your sin is your death, your eternal death. He wants to drag you down into the same fate he had. So ultimately, Satan's greatest tool is death. And he wants to drag you down because that's ultimately where sin leads. In between, there's unhappiness, frustration, all that kind of stuff. But it ultimately leads to death. So Jesus killed two birds with one stone. It's the greatest two for one in the history of mankind. He died, which paid the debt that we owed for sin. The wage of sin is death. Then he resurrected, which was saying, I'm going to defeat Satan, the greatest tool you think you got. And that is death. I'm going to smash it to pieces because even death cannot stop God's mercy. Even your greatest tool, Satan. That's why these high school kids today in these surveys that say Satan is as powerful as God, just in the opposite direction, hogwash. Satan is not as powerful as God because his greatest tool 
Christ just crushed. He just crushed it. Now, this is so important because this is at mass, this is what we experience. And this is ultimately what I wanted to get to because at mass, Father Seraphim taught me that God's three greatest acts of mercy, you know, uh, we see God's mercy everywhere, but there's three great acts of mercy. Creation, the fact that he created us. God's, the first great act of mercy is the love between the Trinity was perfect love, but God decided to let that love flow outside of the Trinity, outward. And when that happened, we have creation. He created us out of love. So the first great act of mercy is creation. Now, who do we normally attribute creation to? God the Father. So the first great act of mercy is normally attributed to the first person of the Trinity, God the Father. Now, you've heard me say before, our faith is like a circle. All comes from God, all will return to God. Now, if we were all created by God, we all came from him. The problem is, it took Adam and Eve 10 minutes to get broken in the garden. They sinned, so what happened? I just told you. The God-man had to fix that gap. So in the second great act of mercy, the second person of the Trinity came down redemption. We've all been redeemed, even souls in hell. Not everybody will be saved, but we've all been redeemed. So the second great act of mercy, the second person of the Trinity came down redemption. Now, in the third, final, and greatest act of mercy, God will return us. Jesus is going to go back to the Father. That's his mission. The Father sent him. He redeemed us. Now he's going back to the Father with redeemed mankind on his shoulders like the sheep, the lost sheep. Now, don't miss this boat because in this going back to the Father, he's taking us with him. This third great act of mercy by guess who, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is called sanctification, divinization. It means we now are sharing in the divine life of God. So here we were, nothing, nobody, just the Trinity existed, which is great. He created us. First great act of mercy, creation. We got broken. In the second great act of mercy, the second person came down, redemption. Now, he's taking us today from the resurrection. He's taking us back, and when he ascends back to the Father, which is part of the Paschal mystery, he takes us with him. And that third act of mercy, divinization, sharing in the divine nature, means Christ is going back to the Father. Hold on. Grab onto that cross Grab onto it, hold on, because Jesus has taken us back to the Father, fixed, repaired, sanctified, and now divinized. This is why the Mass, you've heard me say, is God offering God to God. I don't need the Mass, Father. I pray in my room. Your prayer is imperfect. My prayer is imperfect. The only perfect form of prayer is this Mass. Why is it perfect? Because it's God offering God to God. God the Son offering himself through God the Holy Spirit to God the Father in atonement for our sins and the sins of the whole world. He's fixing everything. So when we have this, God the Holy Spirit, offering God the Son, and himself offering, to God the Father to fix everything. It's God offering God to God. That's what's going on in the Mass right now. You are there at Calvary, as at the foot of the cross, as Jesus paid that debt to sin. Now he's taking us back. We're part of that. That's what the whole resurrection is about. Now, to finally finish, 
But come on, it's Easter. We, we, we got we to gotta realize how much is here. We are beginning the most incredible eight days. It's called the Easter octave. Now, the Easter octave is eight days. Why? Why is this so important? All right, now. When a feast for the Jews was so big that they couldn't celebrate it in one day, they would celebrate it over eight days. Passover is a big feast. Jesus just fulfilled it. He's now the lamb that has been sacrificed. And they would eat the lamb physically in the Passover. We are now eating the true lamb in the Eucharist. Now, here's the point. When a feast was so big, they would celebrate it over not one day, but eight days. Now, Easter is an eight-day celebration. It starts today. Octave. Now, actually, the Easter season goes out through the Ascension, 40 days, and then to the Pentecost. But here's what you need to know right now. The first day is Easter Sunday. Jesus opened the door to heaven on Easter Sunday. The door is now open. Now, people say, okay, Father, let's walk through. Not so fast. If Jesus is opening the door to heaven, we still have to journey to get there. That's why the Jews went through the desert of, of searching for the promised land. We, too, are searching and looking for that open door. It's a pilgrimage that we call life. And in our journey in life, we are searching for that open door that Jesus now just opened. Now, Jesus said, and we're going to talk about this next week, Divine Mercy Sunday. He said, I want it the Sunday after Easter, the eighth day. Why? Because on the Sunday after Easter, it has to be on that day, Jesus said. No other day. Why? Okay. Because Easter is day one of the octave. Easter Sunday, day one. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Divine Mercy Sunday, the eighth day. Why? What does this all mean, Father? Okay. What was the perfect number to the Jews? Seven. That was a number that was perfect. Well, then why does not have Divine Mercy Sunday on the seventh day, on Saturday? All right? Because seven was the perfect number in regards to time, creation. Okay, but the number eight to the Jews represented eternity. So <clears throat> here's everything wrapped up. If, if you've been sleeping or you didn't understand anything I said, just know this. <laughs> On Easter Sunday, day one, Jesus opened the door to heaven. The next seven days, symbolic of the perfect number of time, you are on earth in your earthly pilgrimage, stumbling around the desert, the valley of tears, looking for the promised land. Then on the eighth day, you will enter into eternity. Eight represented eternity to the Jews, and that's what Jesus comes on the eighth day to get you to take you into eternity. The thing is, if those seven days, which Jesus opened the door to heaven, we're now searching our seven days, this is our journey to get there, but on the eighth day, he's coming to get us, if he wants us to go to heaven, which he does, we got to be spotless. The problem is, we usually aren't. That's why Divine Mercy Sunday offers the complete promise of wiping you spotless so that Jesus, the groom, can take you home to his mother and father as his bride. Now, I'm not going to do it now, 
But next week, I'm going to explain to you what those promises of Divine Mercy Sunday are, how we are cleansed, and why you need to do this. Because then you can be ready as the bride that Jesus is the groom comes to get on the eighth day to take you into eternity so you're ready. The whole point is that we are ready. This is the meaning of these eight days. The next eight days, please join us. I'll be with you Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and Sunday. Well, I won't be Sunday. We'll be on EWTN. But I will explain. Please watch us on EWTN. I will explain these graces on that show. So God bless you. Jesus is the groom. We are the bride. He's coming for us. This is why Divine Mercy Sunday is so important. So, so important. Don't let it pass by. Whew. Sorry for the long homily, but it's Easter. My goodness, the joy we need to stand from the rooftops and proclaim. This is everything we live for. This is everything we were created for, to know God, love him, and serve him, and to be happy with him forever in heaven. This is now the door that is opened. Christ has now redeemed us. Now what we got to do in the next seven days called our life is clean up so that when he comes on the eighth day of Divine Mercy Sunday, we're ready. And so stay with us next week as we explain how to do that. Then you've got the whole picture, the whole picture of our faith. Happy Easter, and God bless you. Are you a Marian helper? Join our Spiritual Benefit Society and start sharing in the graces of all the daily masses, prayers, and good works of Marian priests and brothers all over the world. Sign up is free and easy. Simply visit micprayers.org. That's micprayers.org. Thank you, and God bless you. Please follow or subscribe to this podcast to receive the latest episodes and updates. If you have been blessed by this podcast, I invite you to leave a review. Reviews greatly improve our podcast ranking and will help spread this podcast to other people throughout the world. Are you enjoying this podcast? I invite you to listen to more shows brought to you by the Marian Fathers of the Immaculate Conception. Join us daily for enriching spiritual content which will help you on your journey with Jesus Christ. Simply visit divinemercyplus.org for a complete list of our shows. That's divinemercyplus.org. Are you a Marian helper? Join our Spiritual Benefit Society and start sharing in the graces of all the daily masses, prayers, and good works of Marian priests and brothers all over the world. Sign up is free and easy. Simply visit micprayers.org. That's micprayers.org. Thank you, and God bless you.